on episode two of the Marine Layer podcast with Lyle Goldstein and TJ Matthewson. We'll take a look at what a potential Chris Flexen trade would look like for the Mariners. We'll look at the free agent profile of one of the four major free agent shortstops, former Red Sox shortstop Xander Bogarts. We'll take a look around all the latest Major League Baseball news in our Major League Baseball wraparound, and then we'll finish the show with speaking our minds on, well, whatever Lau and I have cooked up for today. Should be a good show, and with that, we'll get it rolling. And we welcome you into episode two of the Marine Layer Podcast. TJ Matthewson and Lyle Goldstein here on Tuesday, November 15th. Lyle, buddy, uh, been an entertaining week, especially with free agencies starting. Uh, Want to just kick off this episode and congratulate Julio Rodriguez and Scott Service on taking home some hardware um, in the past 48 hours from when we are recording this. Scott, a few hours ago, finishing third in the AL Manager of the Year Award. Uh, voting. He finished with one first place vote, which I can't believe it's only one. Eight second place votes, 14 third place votes. Julio winning American League Rookie of the Year yesterday. Buddy, that's uh, some good achievements for some guys we've been rooting for all season. Not what we uh, not what we thought they deserved, uh, especially in Scott's case, but really good to see, buddy. Also, how are you? How are we doing? I'm doing great. It was great to see Julio win Rookie of the Year. He takes it home unanimously. Oh, wait. He didn't. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It was sound sound reasoning, I thought. Um, I forget the beat writer's name. Uh, it, it, It was decent. It was decent reasoning. I disagree with some of it. I didn't think all of the points necessarily matched if you actually compared to what Julio did in the exact same thing. But regardless, Adley Rutschman was phenomenal this year. So I can't I can't take too much to offense to it. It, re- it was a historic rookie year. So Julio, while we thought he should have been unanimous, what you know, the vote went to a good player. So I, I can't disagree too much with that. This was one of the most loaded rookie classes in forever. So, yeah, I mean, if, if somebody else wants to vote for Adley Rushman, a guy who might already have an argument as the best catcher in baseball. Yeah, it's understandable. I'm, I'm mostly just giving him a hard time in all seriousness. It's pretty cool to see Julio win rookie of the year. That's two of the last three Mariners that have taken home the AL rookie of the year. So it's pretty cool. And, and with all the expectations that surrounded Julio coming up, he lived up to all of them. And it's not really part of our show, Lyle, going just a tiny bit off script here, but the, from the five rookies we saw this year that were really just phenomenal, the two on the Braves, Spencer Strider, Michael Harris, and then Adley, Stephen Kwan, and Julio Rodriguez in the American League. It's been a while since we've seen this many rookies be this good right out the gate. All five of these guys might have taken home the award had they been in their own rookie class Last year, I guess these guys are in separate leagues. But for example, Stephen Kwan's a rookie last year. I think he wins it over Randy Arozarena, don't you? Yeah, pretty easily, too. He, he might have been unanimous. I agree. So it just speaks to how good this rookie class was. It really was a, a good rookie class. But we'll move off the rookies for now to our first subject of today's episode. Not, not really a polarizing subject, Lyle, but Chris Flexen's name has been thrown out there throughout the offseason. If you've looked at Twitter throughout the past week, especially John Morosi reporting from general managers meetings, Chris Flexen's name has been thrown around in a lot of circles for the Mariners to potentially trade the right-hander uh, coming off the season. He threw 137 innings, but was relegated back to the bullpen when the Mariners acquired Luis Castillo, which makes his spot a little more expendable. And he's coming off a three-and-a-half win season, which leaves has his value probably in a pretty good spot after pitching in Korea in the COVID season uh, and such like that. So Chris Flexen's name been thrown around. We've seen some Rocky stuff. Um, and some other things as well. But Lyle and I have each chosen one trade partner for Chris Flexen this offseason and a good return player uh, on the other side that would help Chris Flexen and the Mariners. It, it would be a win-win on both sides. So Lyle, I'm going to hit go to you first. What is your trade decision for what the Mariners should do with Chris Flexen? Well, before we get into what a potential trade would look like, 
just to outline why he's being shopped around and and you can give your thoughts on this too if you if you want I think when you look at the Mariners pitching where it stands right now, we know one through four is pretty solidified. Castillo, Gilbert, Ray, Kirby, and then some combination of the five spot between Marco Gonzalez and the expectation that at some point in 2023, we'll see Emerson Hancock and Taylor Dollard. So you never want to have, I mean, you always want to have a surplus of starting pitching. Every team wants a surplus of starting pitching. But it does feel like right now there is a potential for a logjam, which may be why he's getting shopped around. Exactly. And and if you think of Dollard and Hancock, two guys that really excelled at double A this year, I don't know if they gain much by going to triple A because I don't really think there's anything that deters a pitcher's confidence, especially a young pitcher's confidence more than pitching in the PCL. If you look at most of any you know pitchers that go down and pitch in Tacoma, I mean, George Kirby's one start in Tacoma this year near the All-Star break where he only went two innings. It wasn't a good start. He got hit around a little bit. It's just such a hitter's environment that I don't think it really benefits you to have Dollard and Hancock down there. And you want to see what those guys would do in the big league rotation, which would make the two guys on the back end, Chris Flexen and Marco Gonzalez, a little more expendable. Right. And we saw George Kirby go right from double A to the majors last year. We saw Matt Brash go right from double A to the majors, which, by the way, there's another guy that may fight for a spot in the rotation is Matt Brash. So it's great that the Mariners have all these arms, but you can only use so many of them. So we're seeing Chris Flexen start starting to get shopped around. So as a result, the two of us cooked up some proposals for this show. So there's a couple ways we could have gone with this. Now, with I, what I went with was looking at the Chicago Cubs, a team that may or may not spend big in free agency this winter, but has one specific player with one year left on his deal that could be very intriguing to the Mariners, and that would be Ian Happ. Well, with Ian Happ, this is a guy that put up over four wins last year. He can play the outfield. He can play second base. And the Cubs are a team that, look, when you look at what their rotation looks like for next year, Drew Smiley's hitting free agency. Kyle Hendricks has one year left on his deal, and he didn't have a great year last year. So the Cubs may be a team that look for some starting pitching. And Ian Happ, with only a year left on his deal, they haven't given him a new contract yet. We saw them not extend Wilson Contreras, who's now a free agent. So it doesn't seem like they're exactly keen on bringing him back either. No, they wouldn't. And the thing is with uh, it and Wilson Contreras, you would think Lyle would be it would have been their number one option to bring back. So if they're not willing to bring him back and pay him as, you know, sort of the last piece of that 2016 core, it, it doesn't it wouldn't make any sense to to sign Ian Happ on top of that. Now, they might they the the options we're presenting now would be for them to trade him in the offseason. But I think, you know, his value might be highest at the trade deadline when someone might be getting uh, a little anxious on that. So that's just sort of a way to think about that. But Ian Happ would be a, a good name to have in the Mariners lineup and his power especially would be good. Yeah. So when you look a little bit closer at what Ian Happ did this past year, he had a career year. His war was nearly five and a half. And most of that stemmed from his outfield defense. And again, with only a year left on his contract before free agency, the Mariners made a similar trade last year when they went and got Adam Frazier because Frazier, the year before he was traded to Seattle, put up a 4.1 war in 2021 compared to Hap's 4.4 war in 2022. Now, that being said, I don't quite think the Mariners can get away with giving up as small of a package in return to get Hap. As they did for Frazier, because if you remember, TJ, the package they gave up for Frazier was pretty light. At least it felt like it at the time. Yeah, I remember you and I talking about that that trade package when it happened. It's like, well, they just traded for an all star second baseman for a, a couple of really nobodies. And I think, Lyle, we'll get into that with my trade as well. The the one I have proposed, which we'll get to here in a couple of minutes, but. You think the value of these stars, even stars, good players, would be a lot higher uh, than they are. But then you see what it actually takes to acquire them, and it's a lot lower than than you would normally think, which is sort of puzzling for fans. But in the end, it it, it usually works out well for an organization, and unfortunately, is is usually lopsided in favor of the team trading for the good player. And that's exactly why for this trade package, I feel like I went on the side that may be considered a heavy package. You can be the judge of my trade yourself, but 
The actual, the actual package I put together here is the Mariners trade for Ian Happ alone. And going back to the Cubs would be Chris Flexen and then left-hander Adam Mako, who has some upside that's really, really good. And he's a starting pitcher, a southpaw starting pitcher that the Mariners really like in the minor leagues. And he's a top 10 prospect in the system. I just tried to think about this in the sense of what would cost more than Frazier, because I'm assuming that's what Happ would cost. And somebody like Mako thrown in with a good starting pitcher like Flexen feels like it would probably be enough to get him. But I don't know what your thoughts on that are. Is it too high of a package? Is it too low of a package? Is it the right package? What do you think? I think it would probably, from I guess from our perspective, I think it would be a little bit low of a package. But I think we might be under uh, underrating Adam Mako just a little bit. He he when when he was a little bit younger in the minors. Uh, we'll, we'll go not this past season. Let's go back to the season prior. Uh, was around the plate a lot more than he was this past season. He struggled preventing runs this season. He also had a um, he walked a lot of guys as well. The strikeout stuff wasn't really as consistent this season, but there's a lot to like from him. Whenever you have a lefty like him who throws hard and has strikeout stuff, that stuff always has value in, in a minor league system. And that's why the Cubs could have a liking to him as well as getting a quality major league starting pitcher uh, in Chris Flexen. Oh, so you feel like this trade is on the low side because I feel like it was on the high side, just comparing to giving up Corey Rozier and Ray Kerr to get Adam Frazier. Well, the thing is, it's only really one prospect you're giving. I mean, you're not giving multiple. You're you're giving up one, and it, and it's from an area in your system that you can afford to trade from. Now, if the Mariners were actually going to go after blue chip players, they're trading guys. If you know, if, if they're trading pitching in their system, they're going to be trading guys like Dollard and Hancock to go get those blue chip players. We're not projecting them to trade for blue chip players on this podcast. We're projecting them uh, just to get good players that fit the roster. And I think, you know, a major league starting pitcher who can throw 180 innings alongside a high upside guy in the minors is the is the right price, I think, for Ian Happ. And Hap's a guy who's been pretty good with the bat in three of his last four years. I mean, in 2019, his OPS plus was 128. It was 131 in 2020. It was 119 this past year, but he played some really good defense to go along with that. OPS plus, just as a refresher, measures offense, 100's league average. So this past year, Hap was 19% above league average. Yeah, the tricky thing about this trade is that's a career year that he just put up like we talked about but he's only got a year left on his deal. If Hap had two years left on his deal, this trade may look different, but I think the Mariners won't have to give up as much because he doesn't have as much time left on his contract. It just depends how the Mariners system uh, views Adam Mako. We don't have as much insight to that. We have an outside view to this system. We see the top guys all the time. We keep very close eyes on Harry Ford, Taylor Dollard, Emerson Hancock, Cole Young, etc., on those guys at the top of the system. But when you start getting getting to a Mako, we'll, we'll see the highlights pop up across our Twitter feed. But there's real no, you know, we're, we're not there at the park getting to watch Adam Mako. So there's only so much, I guess, we can evaluate uh, on his stuff. So you saying maybe that's a bit of an oversell. It could be if, if somebody who is at the park watching Mako's stuff saying, well, that's big league stuff. I wouldn't depart for this guy for a guy on a one-year deal. That makes sense. For me, the outsider, I you know, <laughs> haven't gotten to see that yet. So I that's why I'm not, you know, too concerned with a, you know, a, a from a 10 to where's he ranked on the top 30? Is he seven, I think? I believe he's eight. He ended the year at eight, so he's in the top ten. Okay. So you know, I, I don't think that's like a huge price to give up for, I, I guess, one year. And hey, if you like Ian Happ, you can always extend him. We, you know, we'll, we will talk more about the Mariners needing to add payroll. But, you know, one of the best ways to add payroll is to trade for guys you like and then pay them. Uh, that That's a great way to, to build payroll. And if Ian Happ is a guy they like, they would do that. I agree. And we'll see if the Mariners would target a Team like the Cubs, again, mostly we've heard the Rockies, mostly we've heard some rumblings about a couple other potential suitors, but you put together a trade package too. So what did you kind of cook up here? So mine's a bit more of a buy low, I think. Uh, It's funny enough because this actually wasn't supposed to be a pun, but the Mariners are going to buy low 
for Brandon Lau. Now, if we pronounced his last name differently, like Nathaniel Lowe of the Texas Rangers, great first baseman, by the way, a really good hitter. But Brandon Lau of the Tampa Bay Devil Devil Rays, Tampa Bay Rays, Coming off just a, a one-win season, a guy who who put up five wins last year in 2021, uh, hit 39 home runs, a WRC plus of 137 last year in Tampa. Coming off uh, a, a year where only played 65 games and, again, was only worth one win, couldn't really get the average really up there. Again, we're, we try not to use batting average, but... You know, a guy hit 221. And he only slugged 383 last year. So a very down year in his age 27 season. And for an organization in Tampa Bay, they did just sign him to an extension through 2027, a really low money extension. Six years, $24 million um, on that extension. And then, sorry, uh, uh, I have my years mixed up on this extension. Six years, $24 million from 2019 to 2024, and then a 25 uh, and 26 team option. So we have that under control. But regardless, a guy on a on a cheap contract, which would make his value uh, his value a little higher. But for the Rays, maybe they um, don't really believe as much in his future. Uh, I'm not sure. Again, these are all hypothetical trades uh, for Chris Flexen. But I like the idea of Brandon Lau on the Mariners. I do know that he would fit great and he would fit exactly what they need at second base. And Lyle, that's why I think he would be a good trade target. Look, second base is a gaping hole on this team. So a guy like Brandon Lau, who two of the last three seasons has finished top 10 in MVP voting, it makes a lot of sense. My only question is, would the Rays trade a guy like that with that much club control, who historically has been one of their best players? The thing is with with franchises that are cheap, um, Rays, you know, are have do not pay much money to their roster at all, and that's what I always wonder. But you're right; the club control is the biggest thing, which is why I think my trade might be a little bit of an undersell. Yours was a bit of an oversell in the in, in the Chris Flexen uh, for Ian Happ trade. Mine may be a bit of an undersell, but here's what I'm offering the Tampa Bay Rays uh, for Brandon Lau. It is going to be Chris Flexen. Uh, number 10 prospect in the system, Zach Deloach, and a player to be named later. So I, I, I've not scoped out what that player to be named later would be. It would be, I I think it's relative whatever value of what the, the Rays deem uh, to decide on for that player to be named later. It could be someone extremely val- valuable. There's someone on the Rays 40-man roster, actually 26-man roster right now, who is a player to be named later, and he ended up being a top five, five prospect in Shane Boz. Now, I don't know if the Mariners would be giving up quite that much for for Brandon Lau, a very good player, but I don't know, again, to the, you know, the extent uh, of what uh, that that trade, which was just an all time fleece for Chris Archer uh, Pirates. I'm not sure what you were doing there. But that's why I think this would be good for Tampa. Now, a little bit about Zach Deloach, second round pick in 2020. Lau and I, when we both interned on the Cape, got to see Zach Deloach play when he was in college. Uh, his junior season at Texas A&M hit 421 before, uh, in only 18 games before he got drafted in the second round by the Mariners. Uh, his entire 23-year-old season in AA. So I, I would imagine Deloach would play a little bit better in... Um, in AAA, as we said, the PCL is just an absolute bam box of a park. And I realized that I did not write down um, <laughs> Zach Deloach's stats on my uh, stats page. I wrote down everything else of his that I would need, but didn't write down his stats. But regardless, uh, he had a, a WRC plus just over 100 this year. That I know uh, in AA Arkansas. So he was fine, uh, but there's some upside there in the bat. I'm just curious if the Rays would like that. Also, the Rays don't have much outfield depth in their system at all. Uh, they only have four total outfielders in their top 30, and their top-rated uh, outfield prospect is Brock Jones, who's not even a top 100 prospect. He's a 
uh, a former Stanford Cardinal, uh, got drafted in this past year's draft, and he's played a grand total of 19 career games. So I think it would be good for them to have an outfielder in their system who has plenty of minor league experience and someone that could be on the fringe of the majors within a year. Look, it's certainly a possible trade. The Mariners and the Rays, I feel like, basically stand off to the side of the rest of Major League Baseball during these GM meetings and winter meetings and basically just propose back and forth this trade and then that trade and then the next trade because the Mariners trade with the Rays more than anybody. I got to be honest, though, I don't love trading with the Rays because those guys are so analytically sound and seem to not that the Mariners aren't, but they really seem to have cracked the code on something that, for example, when they gave up Diego Castillo last summer with multiple years of club control, I remember listening to Ryan Dibish talk about that screams something that could be trouble to me because the Rays don't just trade guys like that with all that club control. I almost think the same thing with Lau in the sense of if they were to give him away, they may see something that maybe others don't. And I I would just be curious, I guess, Lyle, of what they would see. So, again, we're not promising Brandon Lau gets traded by any measure because what I like most about Brandon Lau is his walk rate is in double digits. And this past season, despite playing just 65 games, the lowest strikeout rate of his career, just 23%, which is right at league average. And if you can take a, a power guy and have him only strike out 23% of the time, that is extremely valuable. By the way, I have Zach Deloach's numbers. I just couldn't see them uh, in the mosh of text I wrote down. 258, 369, 409, 14 home runs in AA Arkansas this year, a 103 WRC plus for the 23-year-old outfielder. And one last thing on Deloach, Lyle, if we're talking analytics, that's why, you know, sort of just, a pitch to the Rays is because a big reason they drafted Deloach, who didn't have a whole lot of track record in college, was because they liked so much of what they saw in his changes and how he morphed his swing in his shortened 2020 season at school to decide to draft him in the second round. I don't know if the Rays would see the same thing in Deloach, but he's got a good eye. Again, got on base 37% of the time in double A this year. And if he would go to triple A, I would imagine that number would be pretty good as well, facing, you know, more of the majorly, uh, you know, quad A players in triple A. So I, I see room for improvement there from Deloach, who will be 24 this upcoming season, but still uh, an opportunity for an outfielder there for Tampa Bay. They clearly liked some of the Mariners' bats in their system. They traded for Austin Shenton last year. They could potentially trade for Zach Deloach this winter. And if the Mariners got Brandon Lowe, or Lau, I should say, I think it's safe to say that even despite the down year last year, that is an upgrade at second base. Adam Frazier had a down year. Brandon Lau's kind of due for some progression back to the mean. And I think a lot of people would be excited about that because his ceiling is one of the best players in the American League. Right. I, I agree with that. Um, and, and I was trying to look at it through another lens, Lyle. I, me and you were brainstorming on, on how we were going to look at these trades. And I, and I wanted to compare it to something. Like, give me another example of, of a guy who is a, a good big leaguer, but wasn't going to stay with his team. And I thought of Andrew Benintendi. Now, I, I look at this Benintendi trade, which took place back in uh, 2021, I did not write the date down, um, but he he was traded from the Red Sox to the Royals. So the Royals acquired Andrew Benintendi in a three-team trade, but I'm just going to say what the Royals had to give up to get him. They gave up Khalil Lee, who I believe was a top 100 prospect at that point, and Franchi Cordero, who is not, and then pitchers uh, Grant Gambrell and Luis De La Rosa. Just not much there that they really gave up. Franchi Cordero has been worth negative half a win in his big league career. Khalil Lee has played a total of 13 big league games with the Mets. Uh, Grant Gambrell did not pitch in 2022 and has a 6.2 minor league ERA for his career. And Luis De La Rosa is uh, in a 19-year-old in a slash rookie ball has only thrown 48 innings in his career. So, you know, that's sort of the, the, the package it would take to get, you know, an everyday, formerly good, somewhat young player uh, that the Royals give up. Again, not the same scenario. The Mariners could make a three-team trade in this scenario. We're only mocking a two-team two trade, but more of an example that it really doesn't take all that much uh, to get a quality player. 
That's true. And and they may do it this winter here because they like again, they trade with the Rays a lot. Brandon Lau is a guy that could potentially be on the trading block. And the reason that we picked the Rays in one of our mocks here is because there's reports that the Rays are shopping a lot of guys around and a lot of people are suspecting that despite all that club control, Brandon Lau could be on that list. So it'll be interesting to see what the Rays do moving forward here because they have some potential pieces to trade. But speaking of middle infield bats, that's going to be a topic of today's show because moving on here, we're going to start profiling at least one free agent per show going forward throughout most of this offseason. Now, the free agent class is mostly headlined by shortstops, four big shortstops to be exact. None of them have signed yet, so we're going to start with one of those guys. We're going to start with former Red Sox shortstop Xander Bogarts, who this past year put up an OPS plus of 133, so 30%, 33% better than league average, a 5.8 war, which was first among all shortstops, including the other three guys that are in this free agent class. And he also was top 30 total in war in 2022. He put up an OPS of 833. Defense has been pretty up and down at best most of his career. This year, he made some improvements. So certainly an intriguing player, a guy that a lot of teams are going to be interested in. So TJ, how would he fit with the M's? Well, I think he would be a good fit. We keep saying that the Mariners, and Jerry echoes this too, that the best fit for the Mariners is to get one of these shortstops and move them to second. Now, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff here about the defense of Xander Bogarts that we can dive into and why he would actually be a really good fit at second base. So with the with the Red Sox this year, he actually had a really resurgent defensive year. I mean, he hasn't he has I did not um I'm trying to take a look at where where the um uh where the defense is. But regardless, his defense this year was as good as it has ever been. So from 2014 to 2021 at shortstop for the Boston Red Sox, he clocked negative 55 defensive runs saved. He was negative in the defensive run saved department every single season. And defensive runs saved is the fan graphs metric for grading defense by a position. By StatCats outs above average, Lyle, from 2016 when they started tracking this to 2021, he was the second weakest shortstop at negative 41 outs above average. Now we look at this year, he was plus five and plus uh, plus five outs above average and plus four defensive runs saved. The first time in his career that he has been plus in those categories as a defender. Now, I'm going to bring up this point to you, Lyle, because I think there's there's a reason for this. Xander Bogarts, when he's playing the shortstop position, so if you're looking towards home plate, the right side of second base this year was negative one in outs above average. But when he shifted over in the second base area, he was plus five in the outs above average. That was some interesting stuff. Credit Mike Petriolo of MLB.com for digging those numbers up. And the numbers, Lyle, get even starker since 2016. One last note before I'll let you comment on this. In the shortstop area since 2016, he's negative 41 outs above average. But in the second base area, he's plus seven. So it's some interesting stuff to look at and stuff I didn't expect to see when looking at Xander Bogarts. So that right there pretty much answered the next question I was going to throw to you is, do you sign a guy to play shortstop based off one good defensive season when his track record is, I mean, at best? Up and down, I I think, but at worst, it's a liability, his defense. He has never been a good defensive shortstop. He's a guy that started his career playing some third base, then he moved over to shortstop, along with the shift being banned next year. That's a guy that if you pay him, you're basically going to have to plug at shortstop every day. Do you want to give a guy $30 million to play you way below average defense? 
Well, that's a good question. So at this point, if we're going to just judge based off of last year's numbers, if you you were to sign Xander Bogarts, you would have him and his plus, I have the number, plus five outs above average at shortstop. Or would you play J.P. Crawford, who is near the bottom of shortstop defense last year in the shortstop position? What what would you do? I think I have more confidence in Crawford to have a resurgent year at shortstop than I do Bogarts to keep his defense up. Again, especially with those numbers that you just read out, that most of those outs above average came from him playing in the shift. Mm-hmm. That doesn't scream like a guy that's going to absolutely lock down the six hole and play you gold glove defense. Now, he's mostly being paid for his offense, but you can't have him losing you can't have him losing you games on defense either. So, it's a it's a tough line to kind of toe. And let's remember he's also going to be 30 and as, for guys who are not great defenders in their 20s, it's almost assured they're not going to be uh, at better defenders in their 30s. So that's something to keep in mind. When we look at his arm strength as well at short, arm strength isn't the you know end-all, be-all of being a shortstop, but he's only 31st percentile in arm strength. He averages about 82 miles an hour throwing across the diamond, which again is fine. J.B. Crawford doesn't have the strongest arm in the world. But it's just something to think about when ranging deep in the hole at short. Uh, and as that would be also be something that would age as you go along. Now, what Xander Bogarts is going to be paid for, whether it's by the Mariners or one of the other 29 teams, is what he's done on offense. Because he has been one of the best offensive players in baseball and close to the best one in his position over the last five years. You look at it, 135 OPS plus in 2018. 139 in 2019, 128 in 2020, 129 in 21, and 131 this past year in 2022. But a guy who's going to be entering his age 30 season, do we expect him to keep that rate up? I don't know, Lyle. I'm trying to figure, I'm trying to take a read on Xander Bogarts because I think this might be very much affected by where he goes and and what ballpark he's playing a majority of his games in. So on Baseball Savant, you can look at his hit spray chart and see where a lot of his power goes. You know where a lot of his power went, Lyle? Over the green monster, which is shorter for a right-handed hitter to just loft the ball up in the air and get it over the fence. But if we look at some other trends from Xander Bogarts that are troubling, um, as we y- you asked, will he keep it up? I'm not so sure. Because even though he won the silver American League Silver Slugger at shortstop this year, he set five-year lows in home runs, hard hit rate, barrel rate, and average exit velocity over this last full season. That's not great. That's concerning. His batting average on balls in play sat at 362 this past year. Now, what that says is he's probably due for a little bit of regression. And looking at another metric, which shout out to Jeremy Crome, a member of Mariners Twitter, he tweeted this out early in the offseason. So away from Fenway... Xander Bogarts' WRC Plus was 107. Now, WRC Plus and OPS Plus are made to take out ballpark factors, but that being said, those numbers kind of scream that he used the Green Monster to his advantage a lot. I mean, he hit a ton of doubles off the Green Monster, which is, of course, very short. And clearly, his numbers away from Fenway Park were not as great as they were at home. So that's a little concerning. And another thing to think about, Lyle, with a lot of those doubles off the wall, how many of those doubles are fly ball outs in different ballparks like T-Mobile Park, which would knock down a lot of those? That's kind of the point I'm I'm getting at here is you worry that those translate into a lot more outs. OPS could go down. And if he's not playing good defense or if he's not playing good offense, you already know he's likely not going to be the world's greatest defender. Then all of a sudden you're worried what do we just get ourselves into? Right. And then if his power saps, it's, well, not totally this way, but is it a right-handed hitting version of Adam Frazier who makes a lot more money with slightly more power? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It's quite the cop. I just thought of that off the top of my head. Um, 
But I, I guess one last thing, Lyle, one last stat here to throw out you. Um, you know what ex-WOBA is, but expected weighted on-base average is essentially measures his quality of contact. Um, so there's a stat weighted on-base average, which, as I mentioned last episode, measures every, you know, every sort of hit differently, singles weighted different, the doubles, triples, homers, etc. So expected weighted on base average takes into con- uh, context of your quality of contact. And what are you expected to do based on how you are hitting the ball? His ex-WOBA has been trending down. And now uh, this past season was at 323, which is 58th percentile, which is fine but is not great, and it was significantly lower than his weighted on-base average, which was probably helped, as you mentioned, by his batting average on um, balls in play, which was in the top 10%. Another couple of things, uh, low uh, since 2017 this past season, expe- uh, lows in expected batting average and expected slugging, again, which would relate to his quality of contact, so the more and more, Lyle, I dove into this, the less I'm intrigued about Xander Bogarts' bat, which coming into this free agent cycle, you could argue behind Trey Turner was probably the second safest. But after looking at this, I'm not so sure. Oh, going into the offseason, I started to play a bunch of DMX because Xander's walk-up song was X is going to give it to you. And, and I'm hyping myself up like, He's going to come to Seattle. He's going to sign here. He's going to save this offense. He's going to rejuvenate him. And then you look, and there's a lot of signs that his contract may go the way that I think Marcus Semyon's will eventually go, who, by the way, both of those guys are Boris clients in the sense of it'll probably work out for half of it, maybe if you're lucky, two-thirds of it. But you're going to be sitting with a lot of dead money toward the end of that contract when likely his offense goes and he already isn't playing defense. And by the time his contract is over, say Xander Bogarts wants your standard shortstop contract, say, I don't know, eight years. I think somebody out there will give him eight years because that's what Scott Boris is going to ask for. He's going to be 38 as a poor defender at shortstop. Maybe not poor, I've seen worse, but below average with the bat dwindling in power. And you're like, eh, it's probably not the best use of our money. And I don't know if the, there's no way the Mariners would do an eight year contract with a shortstop. We're profiling these shortstops because we think they are good fits on this roster. However, if the demands for Xander Bogarts is an eight year contract, I do not see it. Jerry DePoto almost never gives contracts like that out. The only one he's given out is to Julio, who's a 21-year-old superstar, and his ceiling is the best player in baseball. I don't think DePoto has much interest giving an eight-year contract to a 30-year-old shortstop who historically has not played good defense. So that'll be interesting to see how the Xander Bogart saga shakes out. We'll take a look at the other shortstops and other free agents as the weeks go along, given they haven't signed yet. So as long as players are available, we will preview them here on the Marine Lair podcast. Let's switch gears and take a look around baseball with the MLB Wraparound. So first up this week, Rafael Montero signs a three-year, $34.5 million contract to return to the Houston Astros. We'll get to this point here in a second. I'm curious who ended up signing Rafael Montero with them currently without a general manager. Rafa, this past season, a 2.37 ERA, a 163 ERA plus on his way to a 2022 World Series. Well, I didn't know much about Robert Suarez before this postseason, but the 31-year-old rookie signs a five-year, $46 million contract to stay with the Padres. There's an opt-out after three seasons. Uh, he recorded a 2.27 ERA and a 3.22 FIP uh, in his 31-year-old rookie season, rocking a 32% strikeout rate for the San Diego Padres. Anthony Rizzo just uh, announced today, here on Tuesday, a two-year $34 million contract with a $17 million club option for a third year and a $6 million buyout with the New York Yankees. Rizzo returns to the Bronx, where he had a very good season, a 131 OPS+. plus for the first baseman. So that's a few of the signings that took place later this week. But as I mentioned with Rafa here, Lyle, 
Um, I'm curious who signed him, and there, <laughs> there's a reason for that uh, and some speculation down in Houston. Were they negotiating with Jeff Bagwell or Craig Biggio? Because they currently don't have a GM. If you saw this week, James Click not brought back by the Astros. This is a guy who took over in 2020 after Jeff Lunau was let go via the sign-stealing scandal. In Click's tenure, they made the ALCS three times. They made the World Series twice, and they won it once this past year in 2022. Click was offered a one-year extension. He wanted something more than that. They couldn't come to terms on an agreement, and they've parted ways. I don't know about you. I was pretty shocked to see this all transpire, considering it felt like he'd done a pretty good job. It did feel like he had a pretty good job. Uh, It it just wasn't... It it seemed like him and uh, Jim Crane, the owner of the Astros, didn't see eye-to-eye, which is sort of puzzling because Crane had to hire Click after uh, Jeff Lunau was fired following the cheating scandal in 2019. So uh, I was reading, uh, I did check the source, and I did look at this information, Lyle, before you laugh. Bob Nightingale (laughs) wrote an article on this, um, and it had a couple of interesting tidbits here that Crane already had a was already trying to have a, a potential succession plan in place from this past offseason where he privately interviewed several candidates to replace Click last winter, which they would work, work under Click for a year. Then they would fire him uh, and hire the assistant. Instead, uh, James Click was permitted to hire his own assistants, and I presume they were fired alongside him uh, this past the this past week. Uh, another note from that article, Lyle, um, just detailing sort of the roster that Click inherited. 19 players of the 26-man roster that won the World Series this year were all uh, acquired by Jeff Lunau. So just a couple interesting notes there. I was going to say, to be fair, Lunau did put together most of this roster, but it, it certainly didn't feel like Click drove it into the ground or anything like that. I mean, you win a World Series and make three straight ALCSs. You have to do something right. For example, they brought back Justin Verlander last year on the one-year deal, who you might say, oh, well, that's a slam dunk move. He was coming off Tommy John surgery. Then he goes out Mm -hmm. and did what basically, I mean, he couldn't have done any better. He's going to go out and win the Cy Young here in a couple days when it's announced. So Click did something. But like you said, I think there was just some disconnect there between both him and Crane and him and Dusty Baker. That's what I was about to say. I'm sure there might have been there might have been some infighting about who deserves credit for this that could have that could have absolutely been it was it as simple as a hey i'm suggesting you do this and dusty sort of chuckles it off and doesn't do anything uh and james click was getting frustrated by that i'm not sure i just think it's pretty telling when an owner is only willing to give you a one-year contract a one-year contract that is an insult i i don't blame james click for deny for turning down that contract because you can't you can't work on a one-year contract. You can't do it. You're building for the future when you don't even know what your future is. So I think that's super interesting and something we'll have to keep an eye on as we go along here in the offseason. I would imagine James Click will have plenty of suitors, either in an assistant or a full-time role as the offseason rolls on. Well, another former Mariner signed earlier today, Lyle, Tyler Anderson signs a three-year, $39 million contract with the Los Angeles Angels going into his 30, age 33 season. He'll be 33 on December 30th. He put up a season that me and you, for much of the season watching him, really couldn't believe. Uh, a two five seven ERA in 178 and two-thirds innings. 98th percentile average exit velocity. Wasn't giving up any hard contact at all. 91st ranked in walk rate. 95th in chase rate. I mean, he was really, really good this past season for the Dodgers. He had a phenomenal year, but this contract and this player just screamed to me buyer's remorse on the Angels' side. Like you said, it was a great year for Anderson. In fact, it was a career year. But for a guy that's never really put together this type of season ever in his career before this year, mixed in with the fact that He's a left-hander that throws about 90 miles an hour. There's not going to be an allowance of the shift next year. There's going to be a lot more open holes for hitters. It just feels like he's probably going to regress way back to the mean. It seems like he'll regress a little bit. Um, 
the thing I was most impressed with when, when peeking into this, I didn't realize how good his changeup got. I'm not sure what the Dodgers unlocked in Tyler Anderson. They unlock a lot. There's a reason they have won the National League West almost every season for the last decade. But there was something they unlocked in his changeup to make it make him a a more successful pitcher. Uh, that I, I was just peeking at the run value. Uh, run value is uh, runs prevented above average. I believe is the the official um, the official terminology for run value. And his changeup this year is the best pitch he has had in his career for a whole season. Uh, if you mark it by his uh, his quality of contact, his expected batting average against the hard hit rate against that changeup, it was really supreme. So maybe the Angels saw something there that is likable and a little bit more sustainable. And, you know, I can't blame them for it. An organization that needs more pitching uh, got one of the better uh, buy low or buy high, I guess. Uh, You're saying buy high on this. I honestly don't know. After doing a little bit more research on this, I think it's not the worst signing in the world. We won't know until he throws a pitch in an Angels uniform. Yeah, that's true. I was just looking at his ERA plus throughout his career, which is measured basically the same way OPS and WRC plus are, except it's for pitchers where a hundreds league average and the higher your number is, the better Tyler Anderson's ERA plus this year was 163, which is 63% better than league average. He's never even come close to that at any other point in his career. So maybe he really unlocks something with the Dodgers and maybe the angels aren't done spending. Maybe this is their B move in their rotation and they have plans to go out and try and sign DeGrom or Rodon. But if this is their move to, try to keep Shohei Otani in Anaheim and save their pitching staff. I just have my questions. I think, and if they do go out and sign one of those a plus guys, I think it honestly shapes up pretty well for the angels. I I was just doing some in, in light of Tyler Anderson signing. There's a lot of praise of the, the angels rotation, something I didn't really pay too close attention to over the course of this season with the angels, you know, having another forgettable season and, just wasting Mike Trout and Shohei Otani yet again. But the rotation over the second half of the year was really, really good. Tyler Anderson had a two ERA in the second half. Shohei a two two eight. Patrick Sandoval a two five three. Jose Suarez a two eight one. Reed Detmers a three three six. So there's almost a, a vision here. It seems like for the Angels to sort of stack out the rotation a little bit. And if they are getting one of those A plus guys, I could see it as a a. a it being a little bit easier to let Shohei go along and move along in free agency next year, potentially up here to the Mariners. So I guess we'll have to see. Yeah, it'll certainly be interesting. And and the angels really need to win next season. If they want to keep Otani somewhat happy. And if they want to kind of turn around, what's been a tumultuous last couple of years for him. So we'll see what direction they go for them. They're hoping Anderson's just the start of that. That'll just about wrap up our MLB wraparound. So we'll get into our last segment of the show here, which is we're going to speak our minds. Speak your mind, Spock. That would be unwise. What is necessary is never unwise. So TJ, away from baseball today, or it can be baseball. Usually it's not. But throughout your week of life, what's been going on? What's on your mind? Right. So I thank the Royals, really, for bringing the baseball aspect uh, of this back. I wasn't going to do anything baseball. I honestly don't want to do baseball in this segment because I feel like this segment should be separate from baseball. However, the Royals released rendering for a potential new stadium in downtown Kansas City today with their owner. Uh, what's their owner's name? I'm trying to look. Uh, I don't see his name. What is it? Oh, John Sherman, their chairman and CEO. So they released renderings and, you know, had all these bullet points on what a potential new park could do. $2 billion currently envisioned for construction costs, creates 20,000 jobs, 1.4 million in labor income, yada, yada, yada. But I see I see these renderings and it's great. I love downtown ballparks. I think every ballpark should be downtown because I really think it just breathes so much life 
into a city to have a major sports team downtown. I was in Baltimore this past summer in July, and I got to see Camden Yards in the first really modern park situated in a downtown area. And it was beautiful. It, it, it integrates into the city perfectly. There's restaurants and bars all around. People can walk there, mass transit. It makes the whole operation a lot smoother than putting a ballpark on the middle of a, you know, two square mile chunk of concrete in the middle of nowhere, which has, you know, no life. And you would think the ballpark would be a little bit boring. But when it's in the city, I think it's a lot better. So they they really knocked it out of the park with this. However, I have one beef, and you know what my beef probably is with this. There's no roof on the stadium. It is 2022, and teams are spending $2 billion on stadiums and not putting roofs over them so that when a rain comes along, people shrug their shoulders and say, well, we can't play today. It's raining. Oh, I wonder how we could have prevented this. So I thank the Royals for giving me some more content in that respect. Beautiful ballpark, though. I think it would look fine with a retractable roof uh, over home plate. I, I just don't understand why they don't do it. Why not, Lyle? Why not? <laughs> Listeners are going to learn a couple things on this podcast. We want to ban the bunt in baseball. We want to talk about batting average as little as possible. We're super pro robo umps and roofs better be on stadiums. Like those are our Mount Rushmore takes that you better believe anytime one of those four things are brought up, we're probably going to agree unanimously on it. And we're probably going to go on a tangent about it because yeah. I mean, how is a stadium proposal even approved without a roof these days? How? I don't, I don't understand. Is it major league baseball makes billions of dollars of revenue every single year. And yet when it lightly rains, and the field gets a little muddy, they don't play. Like People pay money for tickets to go to those games, and you can't play because the field is wet? I mean, that's just, uh, that's just unbelievable. So that's my first point of speaking my mind. Uh, the second speaking of my mind, I'm currently in my fourth walk th- uh, watch through of Game of Thrones, and I'm approaching Season 8 again, and I'd like to just take this moment Uh, before I get to season eight and really get riled up again to say it is unacceptable that a show ends that way uh, for season eight of Game of Thrones. I I think I'm two episodes into season seven and I already can feel it going downhill. I know the plot is just getting crummier and crummier and crummier. And I know by season eight, I'm just going to be all pissed off again. So it just, it really is unacceptable stuff. I'm thankful for House of the Dragon for reviving a little bit of that decency that the Game of Thrones saga has Uh, Because season eight really almost threw it all right in the garbage. I think it's just so hard to end a show. And I'm not defending Game of Thrones because obviously there's a reason it was almost unanimously hated in the final season. But I think in general, it's just very, very difficult to try to put the right cap on any TV show. Like The Office is probably one that stands alone for how well they capped it off. But... Yeah, I mean, some people say these days they just get to season eight and just stop because they don't want to watch the end again. But you're going to watch right. it through, you said. Oh, I'm going to watch it. There's no way I'm missing that. The thing, I guess, with this show is you can't, like, when a show is labeled as one of the greatest shows of all time, which I think many people would agree Game of Thrones is on or near the Mount Rushmore of greatest television shows of all time, to end a show that poorly, to, to poorly plan the final season like that bad to, to, to really just screw it up that way and leave your fan base who has hung with you for nearly a decade to watch this show and just to sort of throw your reputation away because you wanted to save some money on the final season. is just, just bad. It really is bad. And I'm going to get all riled up when I finish it probably over the weekend. Well, I don't blame you. And the tough thing for us is neither of us watched Game of Thrones in real time, where now we're both watching House of the Dragon, and we realize, oh, we have to wait like two years for the next season. So that's fun. That's yeah, fun. 2024 is really, really far away. I think the only game of... I watched season eight of Game of Thrones live, and I watched the finale of season seven live. Otherwise, it was all binging. Yeah, for me, it was... I ripped right through all of it in the span of a few weeks, and then I rewatched it again during COVID. So I've seen it a couple of times, but not quite as many as you. My speak my mind is probably a little bit 
on the upbeat side. I know both of yours were a little on the angrier side. But for me, you and I are both big hip-hop fans, and Roddy Rich, who's one of my favorite artists, has a new album dropping this week. So I'm pretty excited about that. He's dropping Feed the Streets 3. There's actually not a whole lot of features on it, which is not a good or bad thing. I I like Roddy Rich's music just as a whole, and I like Mm -hmm. him single. I don't think he needs features. So uh, he's taking an approach where most of it is going to be on his own, but I'm pretty excited to hear it because I get pretty fired up for any of his albums. I haven't listened to a whole lot of Roddy Rich recently. I was le- actually listening to a little bit at the gym yesterday. Once you mentioned that that could be your uh, your speak your mind. So I honestly I listened to a little bit of Roddy Rich, got back in the mood a little bit. I'm not sure if I'll listen to it. I've been pretty terrible at listening to new music recently. I think the last new album I listened to when it came out was Post Malone's new album at the beginning of June and. That's, you know, five months ago now, pretty much. So that'll be interesting to see. One, I definitely will be listening to when it comes out. Metro Boomin is going to have a new album out um, in two weeks, I think. And Travis Scott will be on it. So that is an instant listen for me. So I'm really happy that that crew is going to be back together again, because I really enjoyed that first album as well. And maybe Roddy Rich will be on there as well. I think that's you and me both. Travis Scott, for both of us, for those who don't know, pretty close to the top of our list and artists. So that'll be exciting. I think there's been a lot of good hip hop music that's come out the last few months. DJ Khaled dropped an album that was pretty good. I mean, Drake and Quinlan eh, Savage. It was, okay. it was okay. It was okay. I liked let's, it. Let's not, okay, there was a few yeah. good songs. How about that? The th- the funny thing about DJ Khaled, it's like it none of it's actually like his music. He just wants to well, tag other people's music. And I think that's true. And I, and just looking at the internet content on uh, about him, like deciding to, it's like, look at this perfectly good song, and then DJ Khaled comes in and just yells, "DJ Khaled!" on his song. He's like, "All right, it's mine now. Good luck." So, He's got the that's easiest. Pretty, that's pretty funny. Yeah, his music career is. I'm going to scream my name in the first ten seconds of every song, and then let all the other artists just do their thing while I sit back hey. and take some credit. I respect the hustle, to be honest. If I could spend my entire life making millions of dollars doing 10 seconds of work a song, I would absolutely do it. I'm with you, but I'm excited for Roddy Rich, and there should be some more good albums in the hip-hop world coming out in the next few months. So, good news for us. That is some good news for us. Yeah, it'll be good. Do you got one more? Uh, Actually, that's about it. I, I think that's only that's the only speak my mind on my mind this no. week. So we have really one more thing. To- there is one more thing. Lau and I are playing in the college fantasy championship this week. So I think one of our speak your mind, if someone gets sick, injured and doesn't play and one of us accidentally starts a running back who doesn't play this upcoming weekend, I think that'll be a, one of the first things discussed on speak your mind next week. I think. Uh, it should be I, a good I was matchup. honestly going to save. I was going to save this topic for next week, just because see how the results kind of play out, and then either start the show with that or speak your mind next week with that. But yeah, while we're sitting about it, or while we're sitting talking about it here at the end, I'm excited for it. And I, I've had some pretty bad luck in the playoffs the last couple times we played college yeah, fantasy. So I'm I'm just crossing my fingers that maybe luck goes my way this time. But playing your team isn't exactly a walk in the park either. No, but this isn't the first time I've been the highest scoring team in our, uh, by the way, college fantasy, not fantasy football, not NFL fantasy. This is college fantasy. So a little bit more of a of a random aspect to it. Some more mystery injuries, uh, some more vague coach talk uh, regarding who's starting and who's not and how healthy guys are. So we're really out here playing the guessing game leading up to kickoff. And you honestly... You know, it's so nice in NFL fantasy. You can just type a guy's name into availability on Google. It'll tell you instantly, are they playing or not? Okay, great. But in college fantasy, I'm literally here, you know, typing Zach Charbonnet's name into the Twitter search bar and seeing if, you know, um, if like Swag Dude 420 has any update sitting in the second row of the Rose Bowl of Zach Charbonnet's warming up or not. Like <laughs> that's that's what we result to. And I've now I think I've started Zach now twice this year where he has sat out a game. It's been listed as available, uh, and he's warmed up, and then he just hasn't played on the field. And us fantasy owners are sitting there like, oh, "Thanks, Chip, you're doing you're doing great, pal." 
Thank you for protecting Zach. I'm sure he was uh, very appreciative of that protection. But it should be a good matchup. Highest scoring team in the league, second highest scoring team in the league with you. Uh, That's how all championships should be. I agree. I'm looking forward to it, and I'm sure it'll be discussed next week. I'm sure it will. That'll wrap it up for this episode of the Marine Lair podcast. You can, of course, of course follow Lyle and I on social media at TJ Matthewson for me, uh, at Lyle underscore Goldstein for you. Um, you can follow the podcast on all forms of social media at Marine Lair Pod. If you go on our Twitter account and click the link tree, it has the links to all of our podcasts and all of our social media for you to follow along as well. For Lyle Goldstein, I'm TJ Matthewson. We'll talk to you next week on the Marine Layer Podcast. <laughs>